Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palladium Magazine's Digital Salon with Vitalik Buterin. I'm Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined, as usual, by Ash Milton, Managing Editor. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik co-founded, hey, Vitalik co-founded Bitcoin Magazine and, and the Ethereum Project. He's recently been expanding his attention into more general problems of political theory, governance, and society, which, of course, topics uh, that we're very interested in here at Palladium. So we're looking forward to diving in. Welcome, Vitalik. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Thanks. So we're joined, as usual, by our live audience of Palladium members and friends. The conversation will be recorded, rebroadcast on YouTube and as a podcast. To become a Palladium member and get invited to upcoming salons, please visit palladiummag.com slash subscribe. The plan is for Ash, Vitalik, and I to have a discussion for about half an hour, 45 minutes, and then move on to questions from our live audience. Please be sure to use the Q&A feature in Zoom to post your question. To get started, Vitalik, you're known for your Bitcoin and Ethereum work, um, but you've started to get more into political theory, mechanism design, similar issues nowadays. Mm -hmm. Overall, how would you describe your goals and overall project right now is it a theory? Is it a movement or something else? It's definitely some of both. And I think uh, the, the blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency world has uh, never kind of been that distant from, uh, I think, the world of uh, kind of thinking about interesting and uh, uh, radical political ideas. Like, uh, right. I mean, people don't really even know this now, right? But uh, if you look at the Bitcoin forums, uh, kind of the, what's currently BitcoinTalks.org, back in kind of the 2011 and 2012 days uh, when I joined, you know, and at the time it was uh, a lot of libertarians, some socialists, some uh, kind of people of other stripes, but there was just a lot of interesting discussion on, you know, how could privatized police work? Could a right. free market deal with problems of uh, discrimination? Like, what could private insurance companies do? And like all of these kind of theoretical kind of uh, uh, questions. And like, this was a major hobby of uh, what was uh, kind of back then the Bitcoin space, right? And so like, I had been interested in kind of those kinds of questions and I'd kind of read a lot of kind of the libertarian stuff, a lot of the socialist stuff, even back when I was a teenager. And so I was very interested in kind of that debate, kind of div the divide in the, uh, kind of the, mm -hmm. or the discourse uh, at the time. And I mean, a lot of people were, in uh, the Bitcoin community as well. And, and since then, of course, Bitcoin has kind of expanded into cryptocurrency and blockchain, and you have Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum and EOS and uh, Ethereum Classic and all of these uh, sub-movements and private blockchains. And so like that spirit that was there kind of in the earlier days has definitely been kind of diluted in the community a bit just because the community right. has uh, gotten bigger. But I, mean, I feel like within myself, it's always been there, right? right. And I've always mm. viewed blockchains as uh, not just a currency, but also as a way of kind of practically implementing and experimenting with uh, kind of a lot of uh, just different ways of organizing, whether it's kind of alternatives right. to like, corporations, kind of, you know, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, whether it's uh, kind of auctions and market uh, design, like these are all things that are, have, have for a, always been a significant part of mm -hmm. just what excited me about Ethereum, just the fact that we can create a platform where you can then just like go write code and actually implement and do the things. And so, you kind know, of while being interested in 
actually building and actually growing the platform, I've also been you know, simultaneously interested in just understanding better, well, what are the properties of, uh, and of these things that we could build? Yeah. So one of the one of the big kind of underlying themes here in all these projects is I've seen it as, as kind of trying to replace corruptible bureaucratic systems or, or corruptible centralized systems with sort of these more incorruptible protocols and mechanisms that, that they don't have central nodes. They can't be sort of seized by by uh, rent seekers or become centers of conflict. Is that sort of a fair mm-hmm. description of one of one of the core um, core threads of this whole movement? I think so, definitely. I mean, it, it seems like on the one hand, there's a very natural jump from um, you know engineering when it comes to Bitcoin or any of these other technologies to let's think about how these mechanisms can be socially thought about and integrated. Mm-hmm. But obviously, social engineering has a very negative connotation, especially among people mm-hmm. with more libertarian sentiments, right? So I'm interested, was this a, an evolution you had to make in your thinking at all? Or if not, but how have you communicated that to other people uh, in your space? Hmm. You know, and there's definitely a kind of a bit of a divide here within the kind of the cryptocurrency space, which is basically kind of it's almost like our cryptocurrencies invented or discovered. And mm, if you right. think about it, like if you just think about it uh, from a kind of outsider point of view, I think it seems obvious that cryptocurrencies are invented because it's like a really complex piece of code. There's kind of hundreds of arbitrary choices that you can make. But mm-hmm. at the same, like people more on the Bitcoin side, they definitely come closer to a position that feels more like saying cryptocurrencies are discovered, right? Like mm-hmm. they, yeah think of like Bitcoin, for example, as being something that's kind of fairly close to the ideal type of money. Um, and, you know, it's got zero inflation. It's got kind of these perfect properties. It's got this kind of immaculate conception. It was kind of created once in this way that can't be copied. And so like, this is the thing. And if you try to change the mm-hmm. thing, well, you know, you can't do that. Whereas on the Ethereum side, there's definitely more of a, well, yes, these ultimately are social systems and like, yes, we Mm -hmm. can kind of build them and change the rules. Uh, Now, does that constitute kind of social engineering or like the other kind of negative buzzword that people use, uh, central planning? Mm -hmm. So I actually wrote a post on this. This was uh, the post that I wrote with uh, Glenn about one and a half uh, years ago. It's uh, central planning as overfitting. And this is uh, Glenn Weil from Radical Exchange, just to our audience. Yes. Yes, uh, Glenn Law from Medical Exchange. And so the idea there that I advance, right, is basically I uh, advance the idea that kind of I, like people believe things like central planning is bad or kind of small government is good. And, like, you know, we want more kind of natural systems. And I try to create a kind of model within which these sentiments uh, kind of have value and are very important. But in an often kind of different sense from the sense in which uh, they kind of sometimes get advanced, right? So basically, mm-hmm. what I talk about is measuring uh, if size of government or kind of level of central planning or whatever you call it, not in terms of kind of the raw impact of interventions relative to some kind of theoretical natural status quo, but rather just uh, thinking about it in terms of complexity, right? So thinking about it in terms of, well, how many knobs are there that actually need to be adjusted? Right. So mm-hmm. like if you look at a, a system like Bitcoin, well, there's actually not not too many knobs. You know, you have uh, kind of the rate at which uh, the cryptocurrency get mined. Like 
the the rate at which new blocks come in and a few other things. But if you start trying to create a system that admits a kind of much more regular and active a kind of central control, then you, you're basically creating a system where you, you have a lot of knobs, right? And the, instead of the knobs being kind of turned once and then set fixed forever, the knobs kind of continue. There's a lot of them and they continue being tunable for a long time. And mm -hmm. my thesis is basically that kind of the risk is greater when there's more knobs, right? And uh, like the things that about kind of engine, social engineering that we consider to be bad basically come from trying to create systems with too many knobs. And uh, we kind of compare this to overfitting in uh, kind of machine learning, right? So where you mm -hmm. create, uh, you start off with like 100 cases that you use as your training data. And then given those 100 cases of experience, you come up with a model. And if your model overfits, then your model will kind of does a really good job of fitting those precise 100 cases, but then when it hits some kind of new 101st situation that's not one of those exact 100, it just kind of flies completely off and does something crazy, right? Whereas if you build a system that's more simple, then the system, like, it might not be as perfect on the data that you trained it, and it might even be substantially worse, but it's more likely to be kind of robust to uh, things that are very uh, kind of unexpected, right? So right. It's because about, if you're having to optimize too many metrics, there's way more room for interference or like distortions in what you're trying to do. Essentially, exactly. you just get it wrong. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, so first of all, you could just get it wrong. And second of all, if you're designing a system in the context of there being kind of warring social factions, then right. the more knobs you have, then the more opportunities each of those factions have to do things that kind of secretly benefits itself. Yeah, and the more incentive they have to try to seize control of the, the central decision-making process. Mm -hmm. mm. exactly. the, your point on markets, or sorry, your, your point on um, the, the discovery uh, versus the invention of Bitcoin reminds me a little bit about discussions I've had on markets and whether we should consider markets to be kind of natural phenomena or in some sense created. Um, mm -hmm. You make, uh, I think it's in the post you mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but you make the point that private property uh, in the way that we mm -hmm. think of it is a, like a highly interventionist social technology or mm -hmm. social institution. Um, mm -hmm. But we, like it, it has a very defined space that it's mm -hmm. operating in, we could say. And so the intervention is, is not a problem, essentially, if we're trying to create markets. But there's an underlying thing there that markets themselves can be thought of as socially engineered. Um, mm -hmm. Is that how you think about markets in general? Yeah, and it depends, I guess, because people use the word markets to mean different things, right? Like there's kind of the market, which is this kind of abstraction of just the facts that people have the ability to trade with each other, which is in some ways just kind of a fact, and it's always true. And then there's markets as in kind of specific practices and specific institutions that have to do with facilitating trading, right? Mm -hmm. So like the Apple App Store is a market and a stock market is a market, a cryptocurrency exchange is a market. Like these things are kind of also markets. And, and there's definitely kind of lots of different institutions and kind of practices that exist in society that have to do with basically making it easier for people to trade. So like there's both aspects to it, right? There's the facts that like people can and are gonna are gonna trade and people, you know, even just develop trade uh, trading practices even in prisons if, uh, be, uh, hmm. if if that's what benefits them but 
you know, on the other hand, there's definitely a kind of, there is such a thing as what economists call market structure, and there's kind of institutions that can significantly influence the outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I, guess, I would guess that prison markets are probably highly interventionist, but something that interests me here, though, is that when we talk about markets, one of the strengths is obviously that um, the risk of overfitting in a lot of cases is less severe. That's probably a very me- mechanical way of talking about decentralization. On the other hand, there's, I think, this, um, you know, in the Bay Area, and especially when crypto was getting started, there has historically been this sort of libertarian kind of cypherpunk subculture that I think animated the way a lot of people were thinking about these things. I'm interested to hear, do you think that culture is still relevant or is it dead, essentially? Do we have to get something else now? Oh, I mean, libertarianism in general as a thing has definitely kind of gone through complicated transformations. Like, uh, I remember, you know, 2010 to 2013 was basically when I first uh, kind of started paying attention to the political trends at all. And that was when then if there was the early Bitcoin community and then there was kind of libertarianism as a thing and it was this nice kind of cohesive thing. But then over the kind of seven years that followed, it definitely kind of went through a lot of kind of splits and convulsions, right? So like a lot of people went off to a kind of a less libertarian right. And, you know, you see kind of Trump as being one expression of that. And, you know, in the like Bitcoin space, for example, you have people like Nick Sabo who kind of went off in more more of that direction. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, you also had in, in the mainstream libertarian world, people who kind of moved over and became kind of post-libertarians or neoliberals or the Niskanen Center or mm-hmm. like neo-rad- neo-radicals and kind of Glenn Wild followers and uh, uh, whoever else. So there definitely has been a kind of in the mainstream libertarian world that kind of split into, uh, um, into two camps. Um, on the uh, kind of specifically tech and uh, cyber side, I think the big story kind of of what's happened over the last maybe 10 to 15 years is basically that kind of the internet started behaving less like a separate country and more like a like basically just part of the world. Like yeah. maybe 15 years ago, like the internet was def- like, you know, there were internet people and internet people had kind of internet op- uh, kind of opinions that were in a, in a particular direction distinct from uh, kind of old world opinions. And that dynamic, it definitely existed kind of all the way through the 2000s. But then as uh, just more and more of the world came onto the internet over the last 10 years, like that ended up in a significantly uh, weakening in a lot of ways. And, and so like, you definitely don't have uh, kind of exactly the same uh, idea of, uh, of let's, let's have uh, kind of cyberspace be this kind of completely separate realm. Meat um, space becomes a carrier vehicle for things happening online, so to speak. Right, yeah. I mean, the two realms definitely interact more with each other. And I think the general idea that kind of the internet is an important vehicle for freedom and uh, the idea that the internet is kind of the, the closest thing to a politically neutral space that the, that the humanity has left is definitely something that people have continued to, to believe and uh, continue to think is important. 
but mm, do you think but, of it as politically neutral? Uh, if anything, it um, seems to be driving. You know, hmm. people it's, talk it about it as like a getting... force for polarization. Well, okay, yeah, less, I'll, so. I'll, I'll qualify I'll, by saying that 20 years ago, the thing that cypherpunks were excited about is the internet itself. And now the thing that they're getting excited about is kind of specifically the blockchain space. I see. And the internet, the kind of the centralized internet has definitely kind of failed in its, in at being politically neutral. And I mean, I actually think, uh, and that's definitely a trend that's going to kind of continue. And like one thing that people I think don't realize is that I think uh, kind of US tech platforms benefited from a lot of goodwill kind of in part because they were kind of not really touched by the government much kind of especially internationally. And now of course that's changing. And now of course, uh, kind of there's a lot of back and forth interaction and and if centralized tech ecosystems are definitely not going to be capable of kind of being independent from from the political environment they're based in mm. but like people definitely do see blockchains as basically being kind of the last hope for an alternative in some sense but what mm. like i'm interested in your own um mm -hmm. ideological self-conception i guess you know sure. there was this era of autonomous individuals and digital digital republics and th this mm -hmm sense of a, a sort of radical technologically driven uh liberation do you, i guess do you see yourself as in any way continuing this idea or have you branched into something very distinctive i would say definitely kind of continuing but with very significant changes um mm. so i think uh, like one of the major changes right is that uh, the kinds of uh, technology that you know, cypherpunks were pushing in the uh, kind of early 2000s um, that have to do with like basically um, communication, like pirating things, like downloading whatever uh, kind of whatever you want, people talking to each other in censorship-resistant ways, and all of these things. They, uh, I mean. I don't think it's fair to call them entirely individualistic. Like they do ultimately have to do with people kind of interacting with each other, but they're definitely kind of a little bit more individualistic. And mm -hmm. then we moved on to currencies and currencies are definitely kind of less individualistic than communication systems. And the reason why I say that is because like a communication system, what does not need is it does not need to have a kind of shared state, right? It doesn't need to have this kind of shared thing that everyone agrees on and that kind of follows along everyone. Right. Like if you have a communication network, it splits in half, both, both halves just keep on going. But with a currency, there is this kind of single thing. There is this kind of set of rules and database that everyone has to agree on. And so like just because of that, it's forced to be a, a, a kind of a community to a certain extent. Yeah, and it's a more social been, project. Yeah, and what we've been seeing is that, like, especially kind of second generation things that will come after are kind of even more social, right? So it's, uh, right. I guess, like, definitely much less of the uh, kind of sovereign individual and, and much more digital, digital republic, I would say. I see. So are you, are you sort of, like, there's this theme underlying all of this in, of, of kind of like a libertarian desire to uh get away from a lot of these things that are inherently these social politicized systems but it, it sounds like in some way you're kind of having to uh make peace with with the the degree of sort of sociality of a lot of these uh modes of interaction or a lot of these things that just necessarily mm -hmm. end up being social yeah. that no that's definitely very true 
like okay. I know Glenn um, embraces the the labels of radical and liberal. My my sense is that in part this is a recognition of the social nature of a lot of what he's doing. Like, is this uh, a frame that you've embraced as well? Uh, yeah, and radical liberal is definitely kind of interesting phrasing, right? Because, I mean, first of all, it's kind of this idea of con- continuing this uh, kind of 200-year-old tradition of liberalism and kind of the economists from the 1800s and of all the way through to like what people have like, in the 1900s and up to today. And then there's kind of radical in the sense of, like, well, there's radical in the sense of like, people talk about radical as in kind of left-leaning or, or radical as in just pushing for something very significant and not just incremental. And then there's radical as in kind of going back to the roots, right? Because, you know, radical comes mm-hmm. from the Latin word radix meaning root. Um, and, and like radical liberal, uh, oh, and then there's the other kind of fun math pun in there, which is that quadratic voting and quadratic funding and like involve actual square roots. But um, <laughs> the, um, it's definitely a kind of an interesting f- uh, frame. I think uh, the blockchain space is. Um, I mean, I don't. I definitely don't want to say that like the blockchain space is the same thing as uh, as liberal radicalism. Like, I'm definitely right. interested uh, interested in both, but I definitely don't want to kind of pretend that they're the same thing. And there's a lot of like, I mean, even Glenn himself is uh, kind of fairly skeptical of uh, a lot of blockchain things. And then there's a lot of blockchain people that are uh, skeptical of Glenn. And then even in the Ethereum community, we have uh, kind of old uh, tr- uh, traditional style of anarcho-capitalists uh, mm-hmm. who are definitely not into Harburger taxing everything. Uh, right. So there's like, those two things are definitely different. And they have a similar spirit in terms of like, uh, Valuing decentralization is uh, a big one. Also, just uh, kind of being forward-thinking and trying to uh, kind of create create something new, and I guess being radical in that sense um, is another one. Um, and then, I mean, along with decentralization, you know, like valuing kind of individual freedom and, and a lot of those kind of connected things. Right. But yeah, I mean, at the same time, there's differences. So, I mean, one of the differences, for example, is that like, radic- like Glenn Weil style radical liberalism, a big part of the intent is explicitly to like basically to convince governments to uh, implement uh, different things. Whereas uh, part of what the blockchain space is trying to do is kind of create a new substrate that's more independent of governments. Um, right. So wrap around some of this. So that's something I'd love yeah. to love to talk about a little bit more. So, like the, the libertarian interpretation of a lot of this stuff is sort of very obvious, right? Like kind of removing these centralized bureaucratic systems. Um, but a lot of these projects, I mean, and, and it's reflected in what you're saying about how Glenn Weil is approaching it. They also make sense from the perspective of the central power in society or the state or something, mm-hmm. right? So these bureaucratic right. agencies not only do they create kind of these rent-seeking problems for normal people, they're also a principal agent problem for the state, right? Like if you can actually get rid of some bureaucracy by replacing it with a decentralized system, that's much, it it needs less governance. It needs less like political management and so on. So there's this obvious kind of other perspective coming in the synergy where like somehow the libertarian and and the state perspective uh, can agree on a lot of these projects. So that's, that's very interesting. But I'd love to hear yeah. more about about how you see 
the relationship between these projects and, and the state and existing power structures? Mm, yeah, no, I think, like, first of all, it's, uh, I think, really important to note that uh, and if states and institutions in general are not monolithic. Like, right. I, I came into the space with this uh, kind of libertarian zeitgeist that basically it says that like, everyone in a government is either evil or just kind of stuffy and boring and kind of not capable of uh, being interested in new and interesting ideas. And people in banks and large, and large corporations are basically the same. Um, but mm -hmm. then I started actually talking to uh, those people and I quickly discovered that, well, no, in every bank, there's uh, a lot of people who are actually excited about uh, the idea of like, you know, Dewey wants to have a, even a world with no banks. Um, there's even, like, even inside of governments, there's, uh, there's always people who are excited about the idea of, well, you know, ultimately, I'm, he I'm not here for the to, to preserve the tool. I'm, I'm here to kind of do the tool's purpose. And if we can completely redesign the way that we serve the purpose, then I'm totally cool with that. There's plenty of people with that mindset in lots of governments around the world everywhere. So I think like realizing that has uh, definitely been important for myself. And so I think like a lot of people in the crypto space have this mindset that kind of it's decentralization against the state and kind of agents of the state are like an enemy. And I think that's like in many cases, totally incorrect. Like just, right. there's a lot of people inside of the kind of, even the institutions that these technologies are ostensibly trying to kind of radically change or replace that are uh, totally open-minded and uh, interested in some of these ideas. So I think kind of that's the first thing, right? So kind of, I don't think this, this view of like necessarily treating big institutions as organs that are kind of singularly de dedicated to kind of self-preservation of every one of their functions is uh, an right. especially correct view. I think they're kind of internally very heterogeneous. There's lots of people pushing in uh, like lots of different directions and there's people excited about radical exchange and people excited about about Ethereum and people excited about Bitcoin and all of these things in the kind of far-flung corners of like just about everywhere that you can find. So I think mm -hmm. that's one important lesson. Uh, and then the other important lesson is definitely that like in many cases, even kind of institutions as an institution don't want to kind of have the power that they, uh, that they have necessarily just precisely because, you know, if, uh, Power isn't uh, just power. Power is power is also a liability. And, yeah, uh, you power... wrote an article. You wrote an article <laughs> called "Control is Liability." I think. It, exactly. Yeah, and and I think like in the context, it, even if, especially if you kind of branch away from say governments and into like corporations, there's plenty of context in which corporations like explicitly wants to have less control. Precisely because, you know, in an arrangement where they do have control, they know that they're going to, like, people don't trust them. And so whatever system they build, it's either going to get regulated to hell or possibly no one's even going to join them in the first place. And so, mm -hmm. like, using decentralization to like, basically build a system where they are involved in building it and they're even an early participant in it, but they don't control it is something that is appealing to a lot of people. That's a it, it, that's a fascinating claim you're making, though, and I think it's really counterintuitive. Um, it, it seems like when I think about it, a lot of organizations, and not just governments, but companies as well, want 
like control, but not liability, if that makes sense. So I, you know, I can think, for example, of um, traditional banking institutions where um, if they have the chance to write their own regulations, that's great because especially if you're a big bank, you can now weaponize the regulations to keep out competitors. Um, obviously direct control over various kinds of financial tools. But then on the other hand, if there's a big screw up as there was in 2008, for example, um, you see the liability and you can basically get bailed out. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that that distinction between like control and liability is the key thing here or is there something else you're seeing? And I think if people can get control without having liability, they'll definitely snap it up. Like and back in mm -hmm. like 2009 and 2010, for example, uh, and there's a reason why you know Silicon Valley was not ex that excited about decentralizing itself, right? Because mm -hmm. it saw that you know it has the reins of power, and it didn't really look like there was a significant risk that governments would like take those reins of power away. Like things like Section 230 seemed like seemed much more secure back then uh, back then than they are today, and so like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey kind of having the master key or would actually was for Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, and uh, the, the safest arrangement, right? And, yeah, yeah. yeah the the and thing I'm trying time, to reconcile here, I guess, is that we seem to see organizations trying to expand something, some kind of interest or power or control, but it does mm -hmm. sound correct that obviously you don't want to be liable for the things you do. So I, mm -hmm. I'm i trying to get this sort of straightened mm -hmm. out. Um, right. What you're I saying mean, seems to make sense. It's, I think both tendencies exist. Mm -hmm. And like, I think, you know, like Twitter uh, recently released kind of like Blue Sky, which is their own internal effort at basically trying to make a like basically decentralized Twitter protocol. And as far as I can tell, I think that's genuine and it's not just a, uh, a marketing gimmick. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, and then like I mean, Jack Dorsey is uh, kind of very public about his uh, interest in like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, right? I mean, yeah. I think he even has like Bitcoin on his uh, Twitter tag, so, or bio. So, and I, there's definitely people that are kind of ideologically interested. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And both tendencies exist, and there's kind of a lot of different factors that like, add and subtract and interact in complicated ways. But I think, like, the fact that there are these factors that add and subtract and interact in complicated ways is already enough to basically ensure that, like, it's definitely not true that, like, the entire establishment is, you know, united against the idea of decentralization taking over. And maybe yeah. that kind of lack of unified opposition is all it needs. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to look at like the case of Twitter in particular. You know, I I don't know the logic mm -hmm. from the in, inside of the company there, but you could imagine it being, you know, they want to wash their hands of all this political fighting. There is a lot of political fighting about like mm -hmm. who does Twitter censor, who does it platform, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, if they, you know, if they can pass it off to this decentralized mechanism where they no longer have control, then that fighting no longer has to occur inside their office. So it's a lot less headaches for them. Um, I, we do have a couple more questions we want to get to before the Q&A, so I'm going to move it along. So you work on a, a lot of different policy and mechanism design work uh, with Radical Exchange and in your writing. We can't get through everything in this discussion, but one that we did want to talk about was the quadratic funding mechanism. Um, so you've talked about quadratic funding as a way to determine uh, and fund public goods. Um, I'm interested to hear more about 
this mechanism and in particular mm -hmm. about how you're implementing this with Gitcoin grants? Yeah, uh, so the basic idea behind uh, quadratic funding, right, is that it's this mechanism where anyone can kind of announce that they have a project and uh, their, their project is a public good and they want to get funded. Uh, and anyone has the ability to contribute to projects. Uh, and the idea behind the mechanism is that it tries to just use people's contributions themselves as a way of detecting, like basically, which projects actually are public goods and which projects are just pet projects only benefit one person, right? And mm -hmm. so the basic formula that it uses is, well, if there's a project and person A donates to the project and person B also donates to the project, then it means that that project is kind of simultaneously valuable to those two people, right? And mm -hmm. the, like, pr the first person is only thinking about the benefits of themselves, right? They're not thinking about the benefits of the other person. And the second person is not thinking about the benefits of the first person. And so there is this tra tragedy of the commons effect if you just rely on donations where person A and person B will both end up donating like basically less than the optimal amount because when they're donating, they're only considering and of the benefits to them personally and they, don't, they possibly don't even know that the other person exists, right? So what quadratic funding does is it says, well, for every project and for every kind of pair of people who contribute to the same project, you basically uh, kind of add in a subsidy that, that compensates for the tragedy of the commons, right? So if you have a project that has two or more people contributing, there's a subsidy that gets added on top, and that subsidy goes up the more money, uh, money that people donate, and that subsidy goes up uh, kind of quadratically. So with the square, the more people are, uh, contribute to that project. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I just want to kind of be, be clear on a point here because this is something that wasn't immediately obvious. It, it, the idea here is that the more people are donating, i.e. the more people are benefiting from a public good, kind of all else equal, the more funding uh, that venture is going to get, correct? Exactly. So mm -hmm. like, for example, if... Uh, there's some public good that uh, kind of two people contribute a dollar to, then the match would be um, would be like one dollar, or, or like basically the formula is like you take the square roots and then you uh, you add the square roots and you take the square, so you go up the you get up to four, so this the subsidy might be one dollar. Then if thirty people contribute, then you know it's like kind of a thirty times thirty square, and so the subsidy could go up to nine hundred dollars. So the subsidy kind of goes up quadratically with uh, like basically the more people, uh, the more people contribute. And where, the idea here, yeah. So, sorry, idea, where, where, where does the, the subsidy come from? Right. So quadratic funding, so in public goods funding, there is a kind of two sub problems, right? The first sub problem is, well, where does the money to fund the thing come from? And the mm -hmm. second sub problem is, well, how do you actually decide what's a real public good and what's just a single person's pet project? Quadratic mm -hmm. funding kind of explicitly solves the second problem, but does not solve the first problem, right? So quadratic funding does require there to be some kind of pool of, uh, kind of extra subsidy funding that's uh, there in order to uh, uh, just be used for funding public goods. Uh, so, I mean, in the case, so what, the reason why it's interesting, right, is that there's a lot of contexts where there is kind of, funding that's supposed to be dedicated to like based public goods within a community. So uh, and a, a government of a country is one obvious example. There could be just some 
wealthy philanthropist who decides like I want mm-hmm. I care about this community and I want to support it, but I don't know exactly what all what are all the tiny things that these people care about. So I, I'm just I want to just donate to a matching pool. And even cryptocurrencies themselves, for example, right? It's like one of the big problems that uh, cryptocurrencies have, right, is that like you have this uh, public goods funding problem in that development of like software, read protocol research, and all of these things are often very underfunded. But at the same time, there's one public good, which is like basically network security that's funded very well, right? Like there's uh, billions of uh, dollars uh, every year going into mining uh, Bitcoin or mining Ether and securing those two networks. So why is like the one public good that is network security funded really well? And why are all the other public goods funded very badly? Well, basically because we know and we have a consensus that network security is important but with everything other than network security, like we don't really have any idea, you know, what's actually like who, like how do you even measure like what is valuable work, like what is valuable research and what is valuable development. And so yeah. quadratic funding, you know, it could be very useful to solve like that problem in particular. Well, and I want to just touch on this because on the political theory side of this, there's an interesting thing being done here, um, mm-hmm. especially when you compare it to quadratic voting, um, which mm-hmm. we're not going to get into that on this salon, but essentially it's applying a similar quadratic logic to voting from a list of options on a ballot. And mm-hmm. you know, if I understand what you were doing here correctly, right? You the problem with the ballot is that someone has chosen what's on that ballot. And so there's kind of a role there that there's still control. And my understanding Mm -hmm. of what you're doing is you're trying to like decentralize even the discussion of what is being voted on. Like, is that correct? Exactly. Why was this important to you though? Uh, Explain the goal here a little bit. I mean, I think like, and for the use case of uh, public goods funding in particular, right? The number of public goods that, well, we have in society is just immense, right? Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I mean, a lot of people th- talk about public goods as though there's like a finite list and it's like, oh, you know, you got your clean air and your national defense and your roads and your education and like either three or 30 other things, depending on whether you're a liberal or a conservative. But like the reality is that public goods are everywhere. And even in the most the kind of pro-government spending places, there's just a huge amount of them that never ends up getting none of the support that they deserve. So yeah. I mean, international scientific research, um, blogs, kind of cultural works, um, edu- educational materials, kind of free media of pretty much any kind, open source software, translations, and um, the... Uh, the list and media uh, to give a kind of a really topical one that's been uh, like really hurt by a lack of a good incentive model. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in journalism. Uh, so there's uh, like the number of public goods that we have is huge. And especially in uh, kind of the information world, uh, kind of on the internet, like on the internet, there's basically more public goods than private goods, right? On the internet, right. like most things that people do are in the form of like, manipulating bits. And once you upload some bits, anyone can uh, kind of reshare and and eventually download and have them. And Mm -hmm. so like, there's this really interesting irony that the cypherpunk movement started being like very kind of capitalism and private property maximalist and kind of thinking that these institutions of kind of markets that are designed around one-to-one trade could be, uh, uh, should basically run everything. But uh, at the same time, like the, uh, 
the internet world that the cypherpunks inhabit is like the single biggest uh, kind of concentration of public goods that there is in some sense, like because like right. almost everything is public and almost uh, not, almost nothing is private. Mm. I've uh, seen so, the chat saying palladium is a public good. I just want to formally yeah, endorse yeah, this. <laughs> yeah, no, palladium is a public good. It's a public awesome. Um, We're quoting that. <laughs> so uh, in, basically the like public goods are kind of as numerous and like as complex as private goods essentially and so if you're going to have a political system that basically says well we're going to have like we're only going to give individual like just people in the public like one one or ten bits of choice in terms of like basically how they can influence the government then you're really not like you're missing a huge amount of uh, information about what's important to people, right? And I mm -hmm. think, I mean, democracy in general, like it, and the fact that it collects some input from the public is good, but like one kind of one bit of input every four years, or even five bits of input every two years, is not nearly enough to kind of capture the amount of information that people have about the world, right? right like yeah. you can't really capture like all of the different uh, kind of smaller things that people value, like everything that's. Uh, Kind of too small to be part a significant part of some grand national discussion. Uh, you can't really capture like how strongly people feel about things, and so, and like one of the reasons people like protests, like for for example, is that protesting does like basically give you a way of saying not only do I care about something, I care about something enough to actually go out and pay a personal cost to express my support for it. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I think having more kind of institutions and public that let people provide different ways of like expressing how much they value like different things, including large scale things, including small scale things, but also including this like real kind of forgotten category of medium scale things, right? Like our political discourse often kind of creates this dichotomy where we have like a private market and a public government. And, you know, everything is either a private good or a public good. But, you know, the reality is there is this like big, huge array of things that just benefit thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, and not everyone, but enough. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And there is like, we're just not capturing that much information at all about how much people value those things. Mm -hmm. And like with quadratic funding and uh, we've uh, going back to Gitcoin grants, like we have basically experimented using it kind of within the Ethereum ecosystem. And we ended up discovering uh, a lot of things about what uh, uh, people in the Ethereum community value and feel is important. So like, people mm -hmm. support projects around uh, community outreach, like marketing, education, uh, YouTube channels, Twitter accounts, like things that uh, for a kind of, so, uh, admittedly, sometimes a bit too technocratic Ethereum. Like we try not to be technocratic, but you know, mm -hmm. admittedly, still like still inevitably somewhat technocratic Ethereum Foundation. Like is just never going to realize that like, that deserves support by itself, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. know, grant making bodies generally are not are not going to just by themselves admit that YouTube channels and that Twitter accounts are valuable. And yet, you know. A lot of people kind of think they are valuable, and I think, and like on right. reflection, mm -hmm. I think those people are often correct. So I I'm going to have to jump in there, uh, Vitalik, because I know we have a lot of good questions waiting. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of points I'd love to get into there. Maybe we can do it in the Q and A. There is one more question I do want to ask you though before we get to mm -hmm. that. Um, you've had the opportunity, as, as we've kind of mentioned, to work with uh, a number of governments to various extents: Taiwan, Canada, the state of Colorado. Um, you know, maybe others you could name. 
there's a lot of people, I think, especially on the West Coast, where there are a lot of ideas about how to disrupt or upgrade governance institutions. We try to forward a lot of those discussions. But one of the things that has come up repeatedly is that there are a lot of people in tech, you know, are, are not good at interfacing with governments and with institutions of mm -hmm. power. So maybe just take like one or two minutes on this, but I think it'd be valuable. What is like the best lesson that you've learned on how to interact with those kinds of institutions? And I think uh, uh, one of the big lessons uh, that I've learned is the thing that I've already said, which is like basically don't overestimate how much they hate you because often they really don't. Um, right. And they just don't overest like, overestimate the extent to which they're different from uh, or people in government are different from just any other people you, uh, you might encounter. And I like people in, go in government <laughs> ultimately are people. And there's uh, people in government that can definitely be get uh, get excited about the thing that you're excited about. Uh, so, and are I you giving like them like a sales pitch, or are you building a relationship, or how does that work for you? It depends, and a lot of the time they come to us. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, and a lot. How would they, they hear just, about you? Just through word of mouth, or uh, so in the, in the context uh, of Ethereum, I mean. They de like people in government definitely read the media. Like I was mm. even told by people in the Singapore government explicitly that like some of them follow my Twitter. Oh, um, cool. I mean, there's people in like a lot of governments that follow that follow my Twitter. Um, there's mm. I and mean, they read about blockchains. They know about blockchains. Um, they yeah, uh, and they often just want to hear and learn things. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think if they want to hear and learn things, like it's. Uh, you know, it's never harmful to be friendly. Uh, and yeah. So with that, with note, that let, yeah. let's let's move on to the audience Q and A. Uh, these have been a great discussion so far, but we got some great questions from our audience as well. So Chelsea Voss asks: A lot of economic production is tied up in fields that are protected by guilds. For example, the law system in the U.S. is protected by the bar. The health system mm -hmm. is protected by the American Medical Association, and they both artificially constrict the supply of lawyers and doctors. Is there any hope of decentralizing these fields or breaking up their guilds? Are there mechanisms uh, that you've been looking at that, that might uh, help with that, that you've been getting excited about? There's, there's definitely people trying to kind of create decentralized uh, alternatives to, a, to um, a lot of these uh, kind of very institutionalized functions. And so one of the more uh, kind of the ones that I've seen that I, that have uh, more progress, uh, there is actually a kind of decentralized arbitration. Uh, so basically, like if uh, two, <clears throat> if you have uh, you know two participants that have some business deal and they have an agreement, or possibly if uh, you want to have an agreement where one of the terms in that agreement is like some fact about the real world, like you know like what is the price of some asset or even like does some item get shipped based on UBS tracking numbers and all of these things. Like basically there's a uh, the thing that uh, some people in the crypto space is doing is they're trying to actually kind of create these decentralized arbitration systems so that instead of having to just do everything through a kind of like a legal system and like courts and uh, judges and all these things, you basically just have a DAO and uh, the D participants in the, in the DAO just end up like, 
hearing the facts and like basically voting on on uh, what the correct outcome is. And they kind of offer arbitration as this kind of very generic kind of API style thing that you can just plug into whether you're you know mm-hmm. making some bespoke business deal or what or you're an e-commerce website or you're whatever else. Uh, so that's one kind of interesting ex- interesting example of uh, just that kind of uh, disruption that people are trying. Um, insurance is another example. Uh, so like this isn't true in every case, but there are limited kinds of insurance. So like often what's called parametric insurance, where it's insurance that's based on like that's based around like pieces of data that you can get from the uh, get from the real world. So mm-hmm. like insurance that automatically pays out if there's a flood, uh, financial derivatives, and for insurance that automatically pays out if there's a hurricane, um, if uh, something happens to some airplane flight. Like these are things that you just can do with smart contracts, and people are trying to do with smart contracts. Um, I know there's also people trying to use blockchains to create kind of things like rotating savings and credit associations. So like basically create kind of smart contract clubs where people kind of put money together into a central pool. And then there's rules around like when people can take money out of a central pool. Um, I mean, people even just use multi-sig wallets, like wallets where you have, say, like seven people that have keys and you need four of them to move the funds as a kind of as a complete alternative to setting up legal organizations in a lot of cases and like if you have just a fairly small amount of money and so or a medium amount of money where you have trust problems but you don't want to go through all the work of setting up an entity and you just want something that's like simple and reasonably robust it's often a good solution so there's i haven't seen things in the like medical doctor uh, context or some or like professional consulting context yet, but I and mean, I'm sure things are coming for just about every industry. Cool. Um, Chris uh, Robotum has a question on uh, states, uh, you know, mm. using the digital space. So, are efforts like Russia's attempt to build a sovereign Russian internet a passing mm-hmm. fad, or are these a very meaningful show of force? Hmm. And I definitely think that nation states are going to uh, kind of get into the building, uh, definitely into the building big internet platforms game, um, building a kind of uh, separate inter- internets as kind of as a somewhat different story. And so far, I'm definitely still expecting that uh, kind of connectivity to the global internet through fairly easily available channels is, is uh, something that's going to persist uh, just because there's uh, too much demand for it, and uh, even if it ends up like being being kind of formally restricted, there would still be ways that are uh, ways to act to access the global internet that are like at best as uh, as illegal as say weed was five years ago. Yeah, like um, VPNs in China and this kind of thing. yeah, that sort of thing. Um, but then the in terms of uh, nation states are definitely i think going to kind of push hard into the uh, building their own platforms and central bank issued digital currencies are a big example of this uh, so you know you have china with a dcp you have the us federal reserve getting interested in building some kind of digital currency there's uh, singapore they had their project ubin and they're continuing to push forward on things and i think uh, the reason for that is that people are just seeing that kind of money uh, like in order to just be efficient enough for people to use this century is going to have to be natively digital. And mm-hmm. 
natively digital things are just naturally competitive. And so pretty much every government wants to kind of get ahead of the game and say, get their own thing in there so that they have uh, an opportunity at kind of getting that in, uh, that international space for themselves. Uh, so I think there's that aspect. Um, I mean, I also think there is the aspect uh, that, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, maybe 10 years ago, people kind of trusted things like Facebook and Twitter to be reasonably independent of the U.S. government. And so even in a lot of countries that are kind of distrustful of the U.S., they were kind of medium fine with the fact that Facebook and Twitter existed. But now distrust of the United States is increasing and distrust of tech companies' ability to resist the United States government is increasing. And so I think... uh, the narrative of like, we have to build our own thing in order to basically not be vassals of the US thing is something that's uh, going uh, going to grow. You know, that doesn't mean that nation states are gonna necessarily build like their own social platforms or whatever directly. It could be interacts, they could be kind of subsidized mm-hmm. or encouraged or a whole bunch of kind of tactics along the spectrum. So, and I think a lot of that is going to happen. And and one of the reasons why I'm uh, really interested in blockchain specifically is just the fact that in this world of uh, kind of nationalized, centralized tech platforms, I think uh, decentralized platforms do have this very unique uh, kind of global position that still allows them to stay kind of Mm -hmm. considerably more neutral than anything else can. Um, But yeah, I mean, at the same time, I mean, the states are definitely going to keep moving forward. So I, I, on the question of uh, decentralized social media in particular, Sam Oberia has a question about this. So he, he, strike, he has the idea that, that sort of breaking them up in a naive way is kind of wishful thinking. Like you can't have a Facebook for California and a separate one for New York because of uh, Metcalf's law uh, sort of mm-hmm. about the, the value yeah. of, of uh, networks going up with the square of the number of users. Um, but, but we do seem to get that effect with, with say Russia or Iran having their own social media, what? How do you see the factors kind of act like? How do you see decentralization actually going to, to get around this law? And and um, what are the what are the factors that make this work or not work? So I think there's two kinds of decentralization that you have to kind of talk about separately. One is decentralization through just creating more platforms that each have a smaller number of users that people can choose between. Mm-hmm. And the other is between creating like single platforms or single protocols that are more decentralized internally. So I think uh, kind of along the, in terms of the first, in terms of <clears throat> kind of would things fragment more, I think, uh, the pressure for people to just want to be able to communicate with other people halfway across the world and kind of be part of the same social ecosystem and the same intellectual ecosystem as uh, large fractions of the world population is just like too large to uh, just ignore or try to put the genie back in the bottle, I guess. Um, so and the places it'll persist, like I have this general perspective that I think uh, to the extent that the world remains divided, I think it's going. The main thing that will divide it is language, like right. lang- like language is to the internet what uh, kind of distance is to the physical world. And I mean, people do say that like, oh, we'll have translations, and in five years that'll fix everything. But like, having actually learned a bunch of languages to ver- to, to varying extents and having actually used these translation tools, like, I definitely disagree. I, I think we're definitely still much further away from that being a reality than uh, a lot of people think. 
Um, and like even a tiny barrier right, is enough to kind of cause ecosystems to, uh, to, uh, to diverge. But so in terms of like, basically I think uh, if you want to move toward an ecosystem where you have more smaller platforms, you can only do that by creating some kind of common layer that kind of absorbs some of the functions that have, uh, that, that used to have network effects. Mm -hmm. So like one example of this is even just like people use like a Google and Facebook and Twitter to log into like uh, many kinds of services, right? So you have right. a kind of more centralized account management that, I mean, that, and that has big problems and we can talk about that, but it, but it does enable kind of more decentralization at other layers because other layers don't have to worry about those issues and don't have to worry about like, oh, people are, no people are not gonna use a new service because they don't wanna create a new account because they already have an account. Um, so that's uh, something, so basically the more kind of, the more things you can socialize, kind of the more the, the rest of the layers can decentralize it essentially, right? So if you kind mm -hmm. of socialize account management, then you can decentralize other things uh, a little bit more. Um, if you can socialize um, like the, uh, the ability to like filter out bad content, then you could get like more, uh, in terms of just like, like, for example, having like a brow actually not socialized necessarily, sorry, if you want to socialize the communication layer so that you can have kind of more diversity and things like content mm -hmm. moderation layers, for example, that's mm -hmm. so uh, I'm just saying like even things like browser extensions, for example. So like basically, I think uh, coming up with ways of like actually getting those uh, network <laughs> effects without have either without having the central controller or with having kind of more limited central controllers like is something that you just need to do in order to get in order to get diversity and kind of the, the rest of the parts of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I just want to say like I think Samo's question in part is getting at like what the goal of a country is in trying to do some of these initiatives and my sense mm -hmm. is not so much that they are trying to block out the foreign internet, but rather that they want to have sufficient internal infrastructure that the mm -hmm. US, if it gains control over tech companies, can't just shut their internet off. Like maybe mm -hmm. they can turn off 40 or 60%, but there will be this mm -hmm. sovereign core that will allow digital mm -hmm. operations to go on. Do no, you I think mean, that's my, accurate? My interactions with like government people in Russia and China suggest that that's definitely a, a large part of the story. And like, there's definitely the part of the story that says that they themselves want to have more control, but uh, fearing outside control is definitely a uh, kind of a, a very big motivator as well. We got another question from the audience from Pasha Kamashev. There's this argument that goes around that technology is inherently somewhat socially centralizing because it seems to extend the ability of people to communicate with each other. It extends the ability of governments and, and other uh, factions to wield power, it's it's kind of it's usually an extending force rather than a, a, a more defensive thing. So, do you think that technology uh, has that that centralizing effect? Um, and if if not, how do we dis distinguish between say centralizing and decentralizing technologies, or both happening at the same time somehow? Uh, very I curious guess, to hear this. I guess my counter question would be, um, do, do you think the world is more centralized in uh, 2020 or in 1943? Hmm. I'd say 1943. 
That's a very interesting well, question. Well, it depends on the. It seems like it depends on the uh, vector centralization. In terms of yes. legibility of our lives, it's certainly more centralized today. But in terms mm -hmm. of perhaps like heavy productive industry, nineteen forty-three, mm -hmm. um, right, it seems exactly. like today we care a lot about the legibility of our lives because of big data and these sorts of things. Right. I think uh, the challenge, like one of the reasons why it's kind of hard to parse this stuff out, is because. Like the thing that technology does is it makes everybody more powerful. And so if you measure centralization or decentralization by the lack of like people you dislike being powerful, then you're going to keep losing because the people you dislike are going to keep being more powerful and the people you like are also going to keep being more powerful essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, like basically going from 1943 to 2020 and well, it's not, it's not fair to say we have bigger government because government in 1943 was, was like very, very big for mm. obvious reasons. But like we definitely have bigger markets and we definitely mm. have more the government having more data legibility. At the same time, we also, we also see the people having more legibility, right? And the people having more ability to see what's going on in the world and uh, kind of being less vulnerable to just complete misinformation is arguably an example of decentralization as well. Uh, so, and I think the answer is, is basically that kind of the, the top and the bottom are both getting more powerful and that's why you see the conflicting narratives. Hmm. Uh, I'm gonna move on to another question. So Jeff asks, when people are trying to design coordination, uh, coordination mechanisms such as blockchain, should they do so with the expectation that how those coordination mechanisms are used depends on the choices of present and future elites? So, you know, do we have to think of the power holders in society when we're designing these things? Hmm. And elites definitely are going to have like a lot of influence in pretty much any system you build. Though, I mean, at the same time, I think we're building systems that are, that tr are explicitly trying to kind of empower people, other people other than elites. Uh, so I guess... Ultimately, when you build a system, you have to think about pretty much every kind of actor that can have some kind of influence in it, right? Like mm -hmm. you have to think about uh, how all of the individual kind of like lower level participants will uh, interface with it. You have to think about how the elites will interface with it. You have to think about what kinds of side games people will come up with to try to kind of strategically organize um, around uh, this uh, kind of to better prosper within the system. And then those kind of side games are going to have games inside of them, right? Like if you build an electoral system, someone will build a political party. And then you have the US in 2016 and 2020, where the game inside the political party is as important as the game between the mm -hmm. political parties. Uh, so, and you have to consider all layers of the stack. I mean, in particular, it seems like opposition would be a big one here, right? If you are changing a voting system. I mean, people in, mm -hmm. in various democratic countries, especially with something like proportional representation, right? This is a, mm. a topic that comes up in a number of countries regularly. But the thing is, when you change the system, get got certain people in power, they're usually not going to just quietly mm -hmm. accede, right, to the great new idea. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think uh, you definitely, well, you, the kind of ideal thing to do, right, is that like if you want to push a reform that's kind of efficiency improving, 
but at the same time kind of rejuggles things a bunch, then if you just push it directly, then of course the people that just happen to lose in the short term are going to oppose you. But if you can ideally kind of put everyone behind the Rawlsy and Veil and kind of let them like basically not see which side of the of the game they're going to be, then like if it's an efficiency improving form, then a reform, then in theory everyone would support it. Like basically mm. because like some people will you know are going to get hurt, but on average it benefits almost everyone. So the challenge is like what's a deployment strategy that looks more like a Rawlsy and Rawlsy and Veil than uh, just uh, releasing the th- or or proposing to release the thing in the present. Uh, so. One thing that helps is delaying, right? Like if you push for a reform that only activates 15 years from now, then that's uh, like that's a little bit or significantly more Rawlsy and Veil-like than pushing for a reform that activates tomorrow. Um, and so pushing for reforms in a way where you kind of start small and then you expand them over time, I think naturally has that effect, right? right. Like the way we're pushing quadratic funding is that we're not saying that like, oh, you know, big governments should just immediately like rip out uh, you know all of their public goods funding agencies and replace them with a quadratic funder or a UBI tomorrow we're saying oh here you know we're going to try it out in our own little ethereum bubble and then we're going to talk to people in color uh, in Colorado and try it out in the Colorado bubble and then we might talk to people in Taiwan and we might talk to people in Canada and, and, and kind of go out and out and expand from there um, and Realistically, it actually probably will take like, at least a decade for like really large-scale quadratic funds to happen. Uh, My so, sense, though, is you have a strong optimism in the uh, willingness of people and institutions to update. Is that I, accurate? Hmm. I guess even if I were pes- uh, I were pessimistic, I would probably uh, it would probably still be optimal for me to act like an optimist. Um, hmm. Just uh, because uh, ultimately you have to try pessimism to of the intellect, optimism of the will. Uh, a quote that I had yeah. in my Twitter bio for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. uh, no, we definitely uh, do needs to be kind of just going at this with the mindset that uh, kind of things things can and will change significantly. I mean, mm. if it all ends up being a failed effort, then I guess fine uh, like at least we tried but i think uh, mm. like the benefits are potentially like really large and so i think we all should be trying and i, I mean yeah absolutely palladium palladium magazine is about trying right governance futurism That's true. Governance, yes. stagnationism no so another question from samo you're well known for your mm-hmm. philanthropic efforts in particular sponsoring research in social sciences and, and some existential risk how do you evaluate which undervalued areas areas are worth supporting how do you choose where to put your money? Hmm. And a lot of it was just uh, listening to the effective altruist community. Uh, so, mm-hmm. like, they did a lot of uh, kind of research on, like, basically, where do you help people the most uh, with, uh, like, what are the cause areas where you can do the most help per dollar? And they uh, kind of settled down on and pu- global public health is a big one. And so like one of some of my biggest donations were to either a, a give directly into the Against Malaria Foundation um, mm-hmm. and anti-aging research uh, that like I donate to the Sense Foundation is also a potentially really big one. And then anti-aging research has uh, been making huge strides in the, in the last couple of years. And that's definitely kind of much, uh, much less of a laughing stock field than it was uh, 10 years ago when I first uh, got excited about it. 
and then existential risk research and basically just even if the probability is small like multiply by uh, an even as tiny a chance of uh, helping uh, 8 billion people and, and uh, 800 trillion future people survive I, like the math is kind of obvious on that so uh, that kind of reasoning definitely uh, kind of helps me along and there is also just uh, projects that i kind of identify as being promising just through all of the different communities that i interact with like i've uh, Distributed to the Radical Exchange Foundation itself, uh, for example, also a couple of other smaller organizations. Uh, so, and then obviously things within the Ethereum ecosystem and some kind of academic research things. Uh, we have another question here from Pasha. Why do you think prediction markets aren't more widely popular? Mm. We had um, Robin Hanson on a while ago uh, talking about some mm -hmm. of this as well. And a couple of reasons, I think. And one of them is uh, just that uh, kind of the interfaces to prediction markets suck. Like the set for the centralized ones, like it's not necessarily easy to kind of get money in and they get money out. Mm -hmm. um, for the decentralized ones, like, well, you have to have cryptocurrency. Uh, now, why aren't they more popular within the set of cryptocurrency users? Then you start to get to the second question, which is that, well, Part of it is that it's a kind of bootstrapping problem. Like if the markets are thin, nobody wants to participate in the markets. Right. Um, another part is uh, just that, like, from a rational actor point of view, right? It doesn't really, like, and from an outside view point of view, it doesn't really make sense to participate in the prediction market because, uh, like, an average participant in a prediction market loses money, and uh, well, they get zero when they lose a bit of money because of like the fees and transaction fees and time spent. And so how do you know you're one of the better ones, essentially? And uh, humans, of course, are naturally overconfident, which is like one of the biggest uh, kind of blessings and curses that we have. But uh, at the same time, there's uh, participating in prediction markets is definitely the sort of thing where like I think people's impression is that it's not super easy, super easy to win money, and it's uh, and the amount of money at stake is not that large yet, and mm. they're not really convenient yet. So, just issues I, that could potentially resolve themselves as a, as the system is just kind of grow on their own, and so we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I'm really excited for Augur V2 coming out, so we'll see. Yeah, so I, I recall that one of the things that Robin Hanson said was that, you know, one of the uses of, of a prediction market might be in, that in an organization, you can use them to identify the best predictors uh, in the organization. But it turns out that maybe when you realize who those people are or what they're predicting, you don't actually want those predictions in the end. Like m maybe they're contrary to whatever your entrenched interests are or something like this. Uh, do you also see this as a, a problem in these markets or not so much? And I think uh, his points about like organizations wanting um, like, or people in uh, elites inside of organizations uh, kind of preferring mechanisms that feel good to them over mechanisms that are correct or kind of optimal. We sometimes, I think there's definitely some value to it. But then there's also prediction markets that have nothing to do with organizations, right? Hmm. Even like prediction markets on who's going to be the next president or like which way is some world event going to go or whatever. Like there's a lot of those and even those. Right. It's like a popular like, market. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, even those have less volume than a lot of people have been expecting. So like there's another part of the puzzle there too. 
So a question from uh, Jorge Oliveros. Uh, apologies if I've mispronounced <laughs> this. Um, how do you think about the ability of governments to formally restrict or even technically restrict peer-to-peer internet overlays, switch power networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, laws governing the physical medium at the level of ISPs and technical solutions like packet filtering uh, are, are a viable way to disrupt these networks, it seems. And, and just more generally, there's this problem of, uh, you know, as, as these decentralized mechanisms kind of embed themselves in the real world and interface with, with the rest of the social system, there's many ways that they can end up being governed. So how, how do you think about that whole, that whole part of the problem? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm not expecting that uh, pro- decentralized protocols are going to come under kind of full-on attack for two reasons. And one of the reasons is that taking them down actually isn't all that easy, right? And, you know, if you, if you start doing packet filtering, then you can just switch to everyone running a node from inside of EBN, then everyone might start to run a node from inside of Tor. And there's this entire industry of like VPNs that are designed toward Chinese users. And if uh, more countries start doing that, then, then that just increases the demand and those tools are only going to get more powerful. So... Mm-hmm. But, and the second thing and is that, like, there's this, like, so rationalists refer to this as uh, trivial inconveniences. Like, this is basically the idea that uh, in order to stop people, like, most people from doing something, you don't actually have to try that hard to ban it. You just have to make it inconvenient, right? right. And so, like, in order to make cryptocurrency much less viable than it is today, you don't have to go all the way to uh, and, like, making it impossible to like send bitcoin and, and ethereum blocks and transactions you just have to you know, ban all the exchanges and strictly enforce the ban and you're like more than 90 percent of the way there right so mm-hmm. there's like this entire array of strategies that's uh, less extreme and much more politically palatable and be, than like attacking the internet itself and so i think yeah. uh, if the political tide turns against the crypto networks yeah they'll just like, do those things first but he, and then even on like they don't have to even go against the whole network like trying to get rid of the thing they just have to like even easier is to say uh get the exchanges to cooperate with the state mm-hmm. on you know censoring particular users or mm-hmm. or turning over data that kind of thing like i think exactly. this kind of stuff already happens um mm-hmm. and so it's this interesting way where you know despite being nominally decentralized it ends up still uh embedded in the social system in a centralized way yep yep uh, speaking of that, Matt has an interesting question here. What are some of the other bureaucratic institutions in state and society that could be next disrupted by smart contracts and blockchain? So, you know, we're quite comfortable with the idea of blockchain and money and finance, but what about mm-hmm. law and justice or diplomacy, for example? Right. And so I mentioned decentralized arbitration already, right? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. kind of Arbitration as the as an API and as this uh, kind of decentralized thing is something that could be potentially very powerful if people learn kind of all of the ways that they can uh, build on top of it. Also, decentralized uh, kind of account management could be fairly significant. So this is this kind of function that's currently being taken on by basically Google and Facebook and Twitter kind of managing your root account that you basically use. It's originally an email or a social service, but ultimately you use the thing to sign into your other things. And so it's basically kind of the Mm -hmm. root of your online life in some sense. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that like you might think centralized providers are good at doing, but actually they're really not good at doing it. And so I could see partially 
uh, decentralized alternatives kind of being incubated in the crypto space and then uh, kind of uh, starting to branch out from there. Um, things to do with reputation and kind of identity and credit potentially. Um, Can you elaborate a bit on that? For a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So in even things like just using a cryptographic proof to say that like, I have been verified by this service as uh, having uh, these particular property, uh, these particular properties, and I'm a unique and I'm a unique individual, and so like you should give me these pr- these privileges inside of your system, like mm. things that people just use like different kinds of centralized identity providers for right now that is like could easily be a kind of replaced with a more fluid ecosystem where you kind of you as a user and kind of maintain more control of the process and it's, <clears throat> you're kind of providing proofs that you interacted with these other systems. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting because I, I just want to jump on that a little bit because it seems like one of the powerful aspects of identity is when it becomes centralized. So I'm thinking, for example, of the way that Facebook has become kind of like a passport now on the internet, right? There's lots of accounts you make you just log in with your Facebook. I know Estonia right. um, has a system that, where that you kind of have a digital ID as well. And it mm-hmm. seems like that transferability between different institutions and, and things you have to like log in on essentially is mm-hmm. a strength. So it, it's interesting right. that you are thinking of that though as a decentralization. Yeah, and I think uh, basically you could see a change where entities like Facebook like basically kind of switch roles from being the controller to being an attester. And so mm-hmm. they provide attestations, but the kind of center of the uh, progress or, or of the process is a kind of cryptographic thing that's running locally on your computer. Um, Wolf, did you want to grab the next? Yeah, so we have another, we have a question from um, Jason Crawford asking, what's the opportunity for decentralized social networks to finally take off? I mean, we've seen uh, many decentralized social networks or attempts at them for over the years. Um, I've been watching the space for like 10 years. Mm-hmm none of them ever quite seem to get that network effect or never quite seem to take off. Mm-hmm. So what do you think will actually uh, allow decentralized social networking to happen? Yeah, so I think um, the challenge that uh, decentralized social networks have <clears throat> is basically like, how do you do content curation and content filtering? Like, mm. and you, so this is like another one of the ways I think in which uh, like, like the cypherpunk movement, like I think is, or at least my cypherpunk movement has kind of changed over the last decade. Like when you have relatively little information, the thing you focus on is just free speech and making sure everyone who wants to say things can say things. Mm-hmm. But when you have like a lot of people talking and a lot of information and where free, the free speech itself seems relatively secure, the challenge moves to, well, how do we create mechanisms to like base to kind of promote things and uh, uh, basically help people choose what they uh, what they end up being able to see um, mm-hmm. and that's uh, like and often that's the layer that's kind of at the source of controversy right now right like yeah if even just like a random example the uh, tom cotton's uh, op-ed that got into the new york times a couple of days ago like no one's upset that he was able to write the thing they were upset that you, the new york times signal boosted it right mm-hmm. so like all the controversy all, all controversies recently are kind of about the signal boosting aspect. And if you have a decentralized social network, then you're, you have to have some form of signal boosting thing of some kind. And the thing that excites me personally is just the, the idea that we could have a lot of these different networks and we could have just 
a lot of experimentation and different techniques for programming for performing this uh, function, and we can see kind of which ones work well, right? Like you could see kind of community-driven approaches where like you would have smaller communities and like people could see things like like even just Reddit's community points uh, thing that they announced uh, about a month ago, right? Where basically you can see uh, kind of not just the raw number of upvotes, but also kind of the total number of of points associated with the community. So it's uh, like the total kind of level of community membership of uh, people that upvoted some particular post. And you could imagine a lot of other different kinds of mechanisms. So just like get people to try hundreds of different things and see what ends up working. Um, mm. And if something does end up working, then great, right? But I, mean, mm. I think that like this uh, kind of curation and fil and kind of sorting and filtering challenge is basically the core. Yeah, the, the network effect does seem to be the key question there, right? Because if you just mm. if you just try to branch off Twitter and make a new Twitter, uh, you're probably not going to get very many people. And so, right. um, you know, you need to invent something like TikTok, essentially, like invent an actually different platform for this to work really well. Mm -hmm. Um, right. I'm, yeah, go ahead. If you had any, I was just going to say, and the, and of the other thing, like, and this is like the, one of the decentralized social media paths that some people are following is basically trying to kind of separate the content publishing layer from the content viewing layer. And so mm -hmm. the theory would be that, that you could write a post and when you write a post, the post is just a post and it's automatically just out there. And then, you know, you basically, in, in some sense, you're kind of simultaneously publishing to every platform. And the layer of like choosing what people get to see is the thing that people basically get to compete on, right? And so that way, like if that kind of ecosystem is actually possible, then you actually end up sharing a lot of network effect across the different services. Right. Uh, I'm going to jump to a question from Samo here. Um, you know, you're kind of moving into various kinds of political thinking. Um, is there a statesman in recent history that you particularly admire or take as a strong example um, for the kinds of changes you'd like to see happen? Mm, I mean, can I say Audrey? I like Audrey. Sure. I mean, yeah, a, a, cur <laughs> a current... Uh, like mm -hmm. maybe, you know, Audrey Tang's story is quite interesting, having been a programmer and then gone into the highest levels, uh, you know, of, of the Taiwanese government. It's we, we chatted a bit mm -hmm. when the show started about how how hard or easy it is for people with these kinds of ideas to actually enter the institutions of government. Do you think that Audrey is someone people should look at as an example of actually entering the halls of power, mm -hmm. so to speak? Um, actually, yes. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if she still calls herself this, but I remember a few years ago, she called herself a conservative anarchist um, mm -hmm. in this, uh, and uh, in the sense of that uh, she likes decentralization, but she's also in favor of uh, a slow and gradual approach and a cooperative approach. Uh, so, And so basically, despite her wanting to decentralize things more she was able to get into and have a very significant influence in like shaping like for example e-government in uh, taiwan for the better uh so i think like that kind of approach of like basically being like wanting to reform the system and like being a revolutionary and valuing those things while at the same time kind of successfully navigating a cooperative approach with uh like 
basically what what already exists i think is uh, mm. a successful story that a lot of people could emulate yeah i mean you know insofar as you're doing <coughs> political thinking are you someone who looks a lot at history uh when it comes to these issues or are you very present and future focused hmm. yeah. i've definitely done my fair share of just looking at history in general and do i look at history when i think about, I specifically think about political challenges somewhat less so and i guess mm. one of the ch- one of the challenges is that the kind of information that's uh, kind of been av- uh, tends to be available about uh, you know, kind of history so far at least if you take a surface view is information that i think is actually not very useful to mm-hmm. like big political questions like if you want to understand big political questions you would have to understand like really detailed things about like within a particular country like what did like particular disputes between businesses and government look like like what did uh urban planning look like in you know like 1860 like what basically like a lot of very fine grain things and history of those kinds of things does exist but at the same time it's not the kind of like history that every like people tends to have a lot a lot of access to easily now mm-hmm. and maybe i couldn't i i of should and will end up doing like much more explicit attempts at like looking into like history of very specific prof- kind of professions or very specific aspects of us of society as they uh, existed a long time ago and i mean there definitely are kind of specific elements of this so like for example and david friedman has this uh, the uh, milton friedman's son and also kind of himself fairly famous mm-hmm. within the anarcho-capitalist community has this book like legal systems very different from ours where he explores a mm-hmm. lot of legal systems that existed in like iceland and other places um and he has in his book that very famous example from greece where they uh, the way that they um encourage people to basically honestly report um, how much money they have is they basically say um if you um if you get declared uh, to be the wealthiest but you think someone else is wealthier than you but is hiding their money then you can basically offer to swap all your assets with them and if they refuse then that shows that they're wealthier than you and so they've been underreporting and so right. it's just really and the key wonderful. thing here is the I, I, I forget the number but the top 100 wealthiest citizens i think it was had to basically pay for the state they were the tax exactly. base so if you're a number like yeah. 100 and there's this guy right. 101 maybe you want to like roll the dice that actually he's richer than you and, yeah. and that's kind of the problem yeah trying to so solve. like I, I i definitely think about things like that and i like i find things like that very interesting and i guess like I would love to see more of that of uh, that kind of history even being yeah. accessible. I mean, it is possible. I'm just looking in the wrong places as well. But I, yeah, and, and, and I, that's more like that's more like the case study method rather than these like broad conceptual narratives and so on. Right. I mean, I guess yeah. And the challenge with the broad conceptual narratives is that just even looking at present society and just knowing the disparity between the broad conceptual narratives that are kind of very loud in public and uh, like the very specific things that are happening. I just right. know that you can't get that much information out of the broad and conceptual narratives. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. All right. I think this is a good place to, to cut it off. We're unfortunately out of time. 
Thank you so much, uh, Vitalik, for joining us. This is a very interesting discussion. I hope we can continue the conversation sometime in the future. Yeah, we should. It was good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and, and thanks to the audience, of course, for great questions. Special thanks to all of our Palladium members to become a member and get invited to upcom upcoming salons. Uh, please visit us at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Mm -hmm. And remember to subscribe to Palladium Magazine on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at Palladium Mag. You can follow Vitalik on Twitter at Vitalik Buterin. So thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. It was great.